Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to see you today. And again, welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Maybe you're joining us for the first time online or even in person. Let me just reiterate, my name is Christian Ballinger, and it's my privilege to serve as the worship pastor here at ACAC. And another privilege I have is continuing our sermon series, Summer on the Mount, this weekend with the ninth installment. And it's been just so refreshing to hear Pastor Allen, who I know is excited to be back with us next weekend, and other of our staff pastors give us fresh perspective on these timeless truths that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. And a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Ross mentioned that he was relieved to find out that Pastor Elizabeth was given the task at preaching on loving our enemies. And I will say amen to that. <laughs> but the, tr- the truth is that he had no small task himself challenging us to examine our motives in all that we say and do. And then, of course, last week, Pastor George's job was to take a topic as comprehensive and mysterious at times as prayer and condense it all into one message. And he did a fine job doing that. Can we give it up for our pastors? So everybody, to some degree, has had a tough assignment, and this weekend is no exception because my task is to walk you all through the largest single portion of Scripture that we'll be reviewing together. So because of that, I'm going to dive right in to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. And it reads this way. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Turn to your neighbor and say, yes, I am. Come on now. He continues. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, or the unbelievers, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Read this with me, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Oftentimes when we read this passage, we stop right there because we're like, amen. But verse 34 continues, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. And my favorite part, each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus, you ain't never lie. Somebody say amen to that. (laughs) So because this is the longest passage that we are going to cover together, I think it's helpful for us to do a little bit of Bible study so that we can come to some conclusions as to what Jesus has to say to us, his disciples. And when I go to the scripture, I try to go asking questions, not presuming that I know exactly what God is saying, but letting a posture of humility breed inquiry. And like my one-year-old daughter has done often of late, I pose why questions. I mean, literally, she, if I tell her, hey, put on your shoes, we're going to go outside, why? I'm like, because you asked me to go outside. What are we talking about right now? (laughs) She says why to everything. And I think that's a helpful way to approach the scripture. So I asked a why question of this passage. And more broadly, I asked a why question of Matthew chapters five through seven, the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. And my why question was, why did Jesus preach this message in the first place? As much as we know a lot of the sayings contained in these chapters, as beloved as some of these promises and affirmations are to us, why do we have them? Well, the answer is simple. Jesus' entire sermon is for the purpose of producing devoted, fruitful followers. The whole point of him opening his mouth on that hillside that day is that he would produce for himself both devoted and fruitful followers. And he gives us insight into his end game earlier in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If you fast forward in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And his last words in the Gospel of Matthew maybe make this most clear when he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, Jesus is after devoted, fruitful 
followers. And each portion of the Sermon on the Mount gives us insight as to the aspects of our lives that yield being devoted and fruitful in our service to him. And the portion of scripture that we're looking at today is no exception to that. So let's review some of it. Of course, Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's near and dear to our hearts. It's a popular verse, even in culture. There's a show that I watch called The Wonder Years, not the old one, but the new one. Not the white family, but the black family. I'm sorry, y'all, but that's, that's just the way it is. It's a good show. Um, but, but on the, if, you, if you watch it through the credits, it, Matthew 6.33 even appears on the closing credits of that show. It is such a popular, pervasive, and beloved verse in all of Scripture. But I have another why question. Why did Jesus say that to us? And we find the answer in just looking a few verses earlier in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? If you notice, that verse starts with therefore, And as I've heard Pastor Tony Evans say, when you see therefore in the scripture, you have to find out what it's there for. And when you look at the preceding verse, not only do you find the answer to that question, but you find Jesus' main point in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's as follows. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I believe Jesus is saying this to us. Exclusively serving God is the most effective way to live in the kingdom. Exclusively serving God is the most effective way to live in the kingdom. You see, because you can be in the kingdom, you can be a follower of Christ and then not necessarily be effective. Okay, for those of you who don't believe me, this is what Peter has to say. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that means you can know Jesus, you can be born again, you can be saved, as they say, sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost, and not necessarily be effective. And it has everything to do with our exclusive service, because when we serve God exclusively, that is what makes us effective for his kingdom's sake. And people who exclusively serve God, they're not zealots. They're not over-spiritual. They're not dismissive of the affairs of life. No, they just have a clear sense of priority, and they put God's kingdom and his righteous standard before everything else. But this is only possible upon the strength of our unfailing trust in the Father. Now, taking a step back, we see that Jesus is giving us what I would like to call a categorical proposition. He says that no one can serve two masters. 
And the way that he qualifies that is with God and money. But that is true universally. Nobody can serve the Steelers and the Browns. Come on, somebody. You got to pick one. Nobody can serve Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. You cannot like them both. You have to pick one. And even our New Testament is not silent as to the dilemma that faces us at times as Christ followers. Where what are some of the things that compete with our service to God? Sin. Come on. It was silent in the other services. This service is more spiritual. That's what I'm talking about. Sin can compete for our devotion. Maybe let me qualify it a little bit. Gossip can compete for our devotion. Fill in the blank can compete for our devotion. We are at a constant war within our members because of this here flesh, as long as we're in it. But greater is he that's within us than he that's in the world. Amen? Here's another thing. People. Sometimes even, oh, come on, I got an uh-oh for that one. (laughs) Sometimes even well-meaning people. But in the words of the Apostle Paul, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. There are things that try to vie for our devotion to God. And maybe chief among them is money, which is why Jesus is addressing this in this excerpt of the Sermon on the Mount. And he mentions it in large part as well because of its juxtaposition with the eternal reward that he mentions throughout the sermon, including this portion of Scripture. And besides Jesus, a person that knows probably more about money than anybody ever will is Andrew Carnegie. And I I recently learned that you pronounce it Carnegie and not Carnegie, because I used to pronounce it Carnegie, but I guess it's Carnegie. It sounds like I'm rapping, but I'm really not. (laughs) I'm just trying to get his name right. And we know who this is because Pittsburgh was made famous by his efforts to expand the steel industry in the 1800s. His name is plastered all over the place, in large part not just because of his industrial vision, but because of his philanthropy and his heart of generosity. And as I was preparing for this message, I started reading a book called 18 Minutes with Jesus, and it's on the Sermon on the Mount, written by Robert Jeffries, and there's an excerpt that I want to read to you. After Andrew Carnegie made his great wealth, he became disillusioned with the corruption money brought to many of his contemporaries and decided to dedicate his life to philanthropic endeavors. He wrote a small tract titled The Gospel of Wealth, extolling the virtue of philanthropy. One biographer wrote, Carnegie concluded that life devoted to making money was an unworthy goal. While a man must have an idol, money was the worst one imaginable. He decided then that a life devoted solely to making money led to a depraved soul and a loss of one's inner sense of self and humanity. After reading that, after hearing what our Lord has to say about money, why would anyone want to serve it? And let me clarify what he means, Jesus, when he uses the word serve. Properly, to serve as a slave 
having all personal ownership rights assigned to the owner. Figuratively, to willingly give over the prerogative to be self-governing. Why would anyone want to serve money? Well, the answer is really simple based on our passage. Worry is the motive for serving money. When we slip into worry, we slip into serving money. And worry about finances is so pervasive that Chapman University's Survey of American Fears as of last year chronicled that two of the top ten fears among Americans were financial in nature. Not having enough money for the future and economic slash financial collapse being ranked seventh and eighth respectively on that list. And since the fear survey was first conducted nine years ago, at least one fear concerning economic matters has landed in the top 10. And I'll add to that, I don't think they necessarily asked them when they were surveying, are you saved or are you not? So this visits all of us. And if it didn't, Jesus would not have spoken about this at such length. But he does it because he loves us. And he's targeting the worry that can grip our hearts debilitate us, and enslave us to the things of this world. Instead, he wants faith to motivate us to serve him. Faith is the motive for serving God, brothers and sisters. And God wants us to believe that he is able to care for us. God wants us to believe that he desires to care for us. And God wants us to believe that he will care for us. Somebody say amen to that. So while we know that, on some level, we still have this conflict. And it can situationally so present us with a choice to make between serving God and serving money. And to help illustrate that, I'm going to welcome a wonderful couple to the stage, Tim and Sue Maloney. Can we give them a hand? So like I said, there are situations in our lives that cause us to make this choice. Serving money is subtle, and it is not necessarily trying to live in the lap of luxury or so on and so forth. It's something that can happen situationally so. So for the purposes of this illustration, Tim is going to be money, and his wife is going to be God. I know he's loving that right now. So go ahead and stand behind this this table, if you will. And Sue, you stand behind this table. And I'm going to present three scenarios that may or may not have visited you in your journey where we are forced to make this choice. Okay, scenario number one. I am offered a job that would mean career advancement and financial increase, but also much less time with family. If you can't say amen, say ouch. So I am going to take my apron because I am the servant in this scenario. And I'm going to start us off on a spiritual note. I'm going to put on faith. And then I'm going to go serve at God's table. And my reward or my tip for that, oh, hallelujah, generosity or abundant living. Ain't God good? 
Because when you make a choice that's conducive with God's character, that's conducive with his will, you cannot outgive him. You just experience his abundance, his overflow, and his blessing upon your life. But let's say you looked at that opportunity and you decided it was too good to pass up. I love my family, but man, this would be great for my career. And ultimately, I would benefit my family because I'm going to bring home more money. So I'm going to march over to the table of money. Thank you very much, money, for my lack of generosity and selfish living. I really appreciate that. I'm so blessed. Here is a really fitting verse to correspond with that scenario. It's Proverbs 15, 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. So if you're forced or if you find yourself with a decision like that before you, can I give you some advice? Don't choose the path that's going to do a disservice to your family because your family is your first stewardship from God. Can somebody say amen to that? Okay, here is the next scenario. I sense a call to vocational ministry, but I'm reluctant to adhere to it because of its financial implications. I think that God may want me to go to the mission field. I think that God may want me to be a pastor, but man, there's not a lot of money in that, so I don't know if I can quite commit to it. And if I'm being honest, this was me many years ago. I did not want to have anything to do with being a pastor because in my mind, in my unsanctified mind at the time, I associated it with poverty. And I, because of my upbringing, I was like, I just, I just am not trying to do that. Now, the silly thing is I was already working for a church at the time. See, that's how the devil messes with you. He's like, man, just take the step, man. What are you doing? But this is the apron that I had on. So I marched right on over to money's table. Oh, thank you so much, Money. You're so generous to give me a loss of witness. Because if I pursue comfort, if I pursue security over God's revealed will for my life, I am forfeiting the opportunity to not just represent him, but to distinguish myself from the people of this world who are pursuing this table by default. We have no distinction from the people of this world if we choose this table in this scenario or any other. But if I walk by faith and not by sight, I'm going to mosey on over to God's table, come on. Then God gives me a powerful witness, gives me influence with people that I would not have otherwise had if I was just pursuing my own security and trying to ensure my comfort. And I would like to add, you can see on the note section that your needs get met when you pursue God's kingdom and his righteousness as a matter of first priority. All these things he will give to us as well. Somebody say amen to that. Last but not least, because this is my favorite. We all love to think about this one. I come into a large sum of money. Hey, glory to God. 
I wish I would have put a period right there. And God asked me to give away a significant portion, perhaps all of it. I don't know, God. That's a lot of zeros. God, I got a really good tax return this year. I don't know if I can do it. I need to hold on to this. I don't know if I'm going to see this much money ever again in my life. So I'm going to put on this apron, and I'm going to go over to money's table. And ultimately, the only thing that money is able to give me is a lack of security. Money cannot guarantee its own security. We've seen enough of life transpire to know that. But somehow, some way, worry, which is a tool of the enemy, would try to convince us otherwise. We've seen enough stock markets crash. We've seen enough financial collapses to know that there is no security in the things of this world. But if we put this down, thank you, money, for that, but I'm going to kindly decline. And we put on faith, and we go over to God's table. What he is able to give us will last for all of eternity. Thieves can come in and steal our possessions. As Jesus said, moth, rust, vermin, it can all destroy the things of this world. But when we invest into God's kingdom. He gives us a reward that will last for all eternity. Can we praise God for that this morning? And before I let my brother and my sister go, it's a really powerful thing when you put the apron of faith on your money and you make your money serve God. Come on, somebody. Let's give them another hand. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. So let me say a few things as a follow-up. You probably notice that in each scenario, the initial choice that I made was by default who I was serving in that situation. Who or what you seek first is who ultimately you have decided to serve. And you can only spend time at one table at a time. If I'm over here, I'm not over there. But if I'm over here, I'm not over there. And this is where we should be. Worry is the only thing that allows us to slip into service to money and ultimately come into conflict with God or his kingdom and his righteousness. His kingdom is his determined will. His righteousness is his disposition. That determined will is God taking his rightful place in our environment's appropriate response to him. So if God is taking his rightful place in your situation, in your heart, the result will not be worry. The result will not be fear, but a faith that leads you to his table. And what follows is his disposition, which is one of love, because he doesn't want us to pursue his will 
in a way that he doesn't want us to go about it. And that's a central preoccupation of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And we receive both of those things the more time we spend at the table. That's why Pastor George's message last week was so important. Because if Jesus is after devoted and fruitful followers, that comes when we are abiding at his table and receiving from him. Amen? Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet as we prepare to close. Serving money only happens for us, the people of faith, when worry gets the best of us. But that's not God's will for us. He wants us to be walking in faith with the firm conviction that he is able, that he is willing, and that he will provide for us. But I do want to add that he gives us this, this assurance to help anchor our hearts with eternal perspective. He wants to give us eternal perspective as we look at these temporal moments. He starts this passage talking about our eternal reward because that's where he wants us to start in this discussion about money. Not focusing on the things that are temporal, not focusing on the things that are fleeting, but that are eternal and will never pass away. And his kingdom and his righteousness are those things. This passage really came to life for me when I was in college. It was my junior year. The year had just come to a close, and I was loving being away from, from home, Detroit, Michigan, going to school in Chicago. But at the end of that year, the financial aid office came a-knocking and said, you have a balance. And I said, I don't have any money, so we were at an impasse. And that impasse resulted in me not being able to register for classes my senior year. So I spent that summer in turmoil over that. And God in his mercy, I was at a church service in Chicago, much like this one, and a brother who at the time I did not know at all, he gave me a word of knowledge that God was going to pay my tuition. And let me tell you something. I ran around that sanctuary that day. I like, my head almost blew off. I was like, thank you. Hallelujah. But let me tell you, the, hallelujah, the hallelujahs faded the more time progressed. Because while I had that word, I did not have the fruition of it. And Jesus later said in Matthew, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word making it unfruitful. So I was holding on to that word for dear life as I was worrying about my future, even though I knew God had sent me to Chicago. I knew he had a plan for me there, but I just saw it fading. And I held on to that word. I mustered up the courage to march onto campus the first day of school, and I lobbied the professors whose classes I would need to be able to sit in on those classes in the event, I was able to eventually register for them, and they graciously agreed to let me do that. But then almost three weeks pass, and I'm looking at the deadline for registration squarely in the face, two days out. And I'm sitting on a train with about an hour ride ahead of me in Chicago, and I'm just like, Lord, 
I know that song, you may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. I know that song, but I don't like that song right now because <laughs> I need you to come. And because I had so much time on my hands, I opened my Bible and I happened to read Matthew chapter 6. And as I was reading it, a light bulb went off. And I experienced such a faith enter my heart. And I literally said out loud, God, I get it. And it's a lot of crazy people on the train in Chicago that time of night. But I was one of them because I was just talking out loud to myself. I was like, God, I get it. You care for me much more than you care for the birds of the air or the lilies in the valley, the flowers of the field. I know that you are going to do this. So I go home that night, come back to campus the next day, and lo and behold, financial aid office, they come knocking again. And this time it was with good news because they told me that I was cleared to register. Can somebody say amen for that? It's kind of a chicken and egg thing because faith is what leads you to the table, but then you receive an impartation of faith when you're at the table. And it was because I went to the Lord's table that night. It's because I turned to him that he not only gave me the faith to believe that he was going to do it, but then he came through. And let me assure you, God always comes through. God always comes through. So as we close today, Worry, again, it's a very pervasive thing. And oftentimes it could be financially motivated, but not always. But one thing I can say for sure is that it is never from God. If you have worry in your heart today about a situation, I want us in these closing moments to cast our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us. Symbolically, can you just hold your hands like this? We're going to present these situations. We're going to present these struggles. We're going to present these cares to him because he is able. He is willing and he will as long as we're seeking him. So let's seek him together. Father, we thank you today. Oh, we thank you. We thank you for your love, oh God, that would cause you to send your Son, that we would have eternal life in his name. And God, that is settled for, I, I pray, every person under the sound of my voice. But God, you have given us insight, Lord, that decisions that we make now contribute to our eternal quality of life. God, would you help us to make good ones? Help us, God, in times of of, of struggle and times of conflict, not to go, to, not to let worry lead us to the table of money, but God, to be led to your table, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, to advance your purposes. And God, these situations that we lay before you, God, we've identified as potential obstacles that stop us from doing that. But God, we give them to you today. And God, we say, in our hearts, remove the obstacle. God, even before you remove it situationally, move it dispositionally from our hearts, oh God. Lord, grant us faith. Increase our faith today, oh God. 
Lord, help us to dismiss the voices of doubt. Help us to dismiss discouragement. Help us to dismiss, oh God, Lord, the lies of the enemy, oh God. Lord, you are good and your love endures forever. No good thing will you withhold to those that walk uprightly before you, Lord God. Anchor our hearts in your promises today that we may serve you, that we may be effective for the use of your kingdom, Lord God. Lord, the time is so short. Life is but a vapor, and you have much for us to do. Help us to not be distracted by the things of this world, but to fix our gaze squarely upon you, trusting you at every turn that you will come through. God, we thank you today. We praise you, and we bless your holy name. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. 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 Let's clap our hands and celebrate the Lord. I'll say as a parting note, and this is a real advertisement for last week's message, if you happen to miss it, but what Pastor George shared with us was so needed because we need to abide at this table. There is so much going on in this world. There's so many things that happen in our lives that would try to separate us from the vine, but we need the vine because we are the branches, amen? So as you leave this place today, make an extra effort this week to plug into him, to wait at his table and watch what he will do. God bless you. You're dismissed.